Greetings, every nation, Malaysia. I'm speaking to you from Nashville, Tennessee. It's an honor to be a part of this sermon series on church history. It really warms my heart that one of my ENS students is in your church uh, decided that a great application for his assignments would be to help um, bring church history into the local church. So I'm really excited to be part of this series. Now you began it last week. Uh, but in this message, uh, we're going to be looking at kind of the early medieval period. I know you're kind of working through church history, going from the ancient church all the way to the present. I'll be talking about uh, the early to mid uh, medieval period in church history, just one particular element of it. But I'm, I'm excited to jump in with you guys. I hope you enjoy a little bit of seminary uh, mixed with a sermon uh, delivered to you by video. So I'm going to begin with two texts, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. The first one is Isaiah 49, verse 6. It says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then Acts 1.8 but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. We pray. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, and I pray that we would have a vision for the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So I began with those two passages because it's very likely that when Luke is recording what Jesus is saying in Acts 1-8 as he's getting ready to leave the earth and be ascended to heaven and giving this final charge to his disciples, uh, Luke is probably clearly thinking when he says, when Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, Luke is probably remembering Isaiah 49. And it's a messianic passage where Isaiah the prophet is um, giving voice to God's words to his Messiah, who we know is Jesus, saying, it's too small a thing, too light a thing that you should be my servant just to redeem Judah and Israel. You're going to do that, but it's not just going to be that. You, again, this is God the Father speaking to the Messiah, who's God the Son, are going to be a light to the nations. You're going to be my salvation, that it may reach to the end of of the earth. So you have this you have this phrase end of the earth. And when Luke wrote that phrase in Greek quoting Jesus words in Acts 1:8 in the 1st century Greco-Roman mind the original audience of Luke's account in Acts they would have imagined the world uh, a little bit differently than we did. If, if you want to do something fun, not right now, but sometime after church, Google uh, first century, second century Roman maps. And you'll see things that are kind of discernible. You'll kind of be able to figure it out. But basically, they believe that the earth, kind of all the land masses in the earth, were, were connected in some way, even if they felt separated by water at certain points. They're connected, and the earth, many people thought, was surrounded by a, um, was surrounded by a kind of a periphery river. Uh, and yes, there would be sort of bodies of water. They would imagine them to be like giant lakes, things we know as the oceans or the seas. They would have thought they were kind of giant lakes, but they were surrounded by this periphery of water. So they're literally ends of the earth. You know, we now imagine the world as a globe, as a sphere, 
So you never really get to the end. You just go around the circles if you want to keep exploring. But in that time, they thought there were literally ends of the map. They imagined the world more as a, a flat map, if you will. Not to say that they didn't believe the Earth was spherical. Some people did uh, back then. But the way they imagined things, there were ends to the Earth. And if you were to ask someone and kind of pause it, okay, I, what, does, what do you imagine when you hear the phrase end of the Earth? What did Luke have in his mind? It's almost certain he would have thought the far western end of the earth was Spain. He would have thought the far southern end of the earth was Ethiopia, Nubia, modern-day Sudan. He would have thought the far northern ends of the earth were probably what we'd imagine as Scandinavia. They had different words for them. And they would have believed the far eastern ends of the earth would be India and China. And they actually thought they were much closer. Um, in their minds, they were kind of uh, adjacent to one another, which I know they do touch, but they didn't realize how far east you could go. Uh, with China. And for just a minute, we're going to look at a story from church history that's not often told in retellings of church history of a group of Christians who took this end of the earth commission seriously and literally took the gospel to the far eastern end of the earth. Whereas in Acts, we hear about the gospel going west and south and a little bit north. When you hear about the Ethiopian eunuch getting saved in Acts 8, that is both a true story but also symbolic of the gospel going to the southern ends of the earth. When you hear about Paul going to Rome and saying, I want to go to Spain, that's, uh, that's gesturing at the western ends of the earth. But we're going to talk about lesser known missionary ventures to the eastern ends of the earth. But I'm going to begin by telling you story of a remarkable archaeological find from 1623, exactly 400 years ago from when I'm shooting this video. So 1623, we're in Ming, China, right? The great Ming dynasty. And there are these workmen digging a trench near the ancient city of Chang'an. And while they're digging, and keep in mind, there's, you know, thousands of years of, of layers of history in China. This is 1623. So far away from, you know, 400 years from us, but they're digging and they're finding deeper history. They unearth this giant nine foot tall by three feet wide monument. So three, three meters tall, one meter wide monument. And they are not sure what it is. You'll see a photo of it on the screen. Uh, and they report to the governor and the governor says, you know, let's give it to the local Buddhist monastery. They'll figure it out. As they begin you know, cleaning off this giant, you know, three meters tall monument, they begin to recognize that there are inscriptions, both in Chinese and then a squiggly one they later find out is Syriac, which is interesting. And the inscription on this giant monument tells a story of a thousand years prior, in 635 A.D., the story of a Persian missionary who brought the gospel to China in the 7th century. And this was during the Tang Dynasty, another great Chinese dynasty. There's so much, if you want to Google it, there's so much you could learn. There's translations. Uh, so uh, there's translations of the Chinese and the Syriac into English and a variety of other languages. You can see the whole story. But there's a pretty lengthy story where it talks about a missionary, missionary named Alipin who was Persian. Uh, traveling along the Silk Road, meet, he ends up meeting the emperor of the Tang Dynasty. He ends up 
um, at the emperor's request, translating the scriptures into Chinese. Again, this is in the seventh century, as well as founding monasteries uh, in the capital city, uh, which at the time, Xi'an was the largest city in the world. Uh, this is, you know, a remarkable thing, and I could go into a great deal of detail about the, the uh, significance of this archaeological find. Again, think about it. A 17th century archaeological find telling about 7th century missionary activity in a country that in the 17th century, they, Jesuit, Jesuit missionaries thought they were the first Christians in China. And it turns out some people had beat them by about a thousand years. But here's a question. How is it that the gospel reached China, literally the eastern ends of the world, before it reached the Netherlands, which in their mind, in Luke's mind, the Netherlands, sort of northern Europe, would have been the farthest northern reaches of the world. Who were these missionaries? What motivated them? How did this actually happen? We're going to take a quick look at that. It's going to be a brief run through church history. And I'll just say one thing. Part of the reason why you, say, you may say, I've never heard of this. What is going on? Are you making this up? <laughs> I'm not. But part of the reason why you haven't heard of this before is because so much of this story we only know through archaeology. And most archaeological finds have really been in the past. Again, there's the 1623 uh, remarkable Xi'an Stella. It's called the Xi'an Stella if you want to look it up. Uh, that is, uh, archaeology is much harder to piece together. You need more and more bits of archaeological evidence to kind of put this story together as opposed to the gospel going north into Europe even though it happened simultaneously and actually a little bit slower than the gospel going east, we know a lot more about it because there's uh, existing writings that have preserved that story. So we hear more of the stories of the gospel going north and west and less of the stories of the gospel going east and south, not because it didn't happen, but because much of that history is lost to time. And literally, when they dig through the sands, they're finding things constantly that are, that are updating our knowledge of how the gospel spread in the first thousand years of Christianity. So for context, when we read the book of Acts, Luke really is talking about the spread of the gospel across the Mediterranean, west from Jerusalem across the Mediterranean, kind of ultimately getting to Rome. He gestures at it going south into Ethiopia. Uh, you know once you're going into Rome, you're kind of at the heart of, you know, at the, at the edge of Europe, so you, you can get the sense, and we don't hear a lot about the gospel spreading east, but it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It's just Luke's story is following Paul, and Paul was a missionary in the Mediterranean. There are other apostles, St. Thomas, for example, being one of them, who went south and east, and the two major ways the gospel spread south and east out of Jerusalem was through the Indian Ocean trade routes, uh, so that's thinking through the Red Sea across the Indian Ocean to India and then into other, you know, we actually have evidence that the gospel spread into Southeast Asia, through the Malacca Straits, certainly in the, Mana in the in Indochina and Malaysia, certainly in the early centuries of Christianity, we already have evidence that that's going on, uh, which is kind of a fun, a fun thought. But we also know about the gospel spreading sort of east through the Silk Road. We're going to talk about that missionary movement. It's a remarkable missionary movement that we don't often talk enough about. And I'm just going to give you some of the highlights and think about some lessons that we can learn today. So if Antioch, we know all about Antioch from uh, Acts 10 and Acts 13. It was this apostolic missionary sending center and sent Paul and Barnabas out. And it was really the hub for missions west across the Mediterranean. Similarly, not very far away from Antioch was the city of Edessa. And Edessa was the hub of missionaries sending for the gospel spreading east 
to Central Asia, to India, and ultimately even to China. And it acts in a very similar way, and we have similar, similarly interesting historical accounts of Antioch and Edessa. So the thing that's interesting about Antioch, Antioch was part of the Roman Empire, part of the Greco-Roman world. Edessa was this interesting buffer state between the Roman and the Persian empires. And you're probably somewhat vaguely familiar with the Persian Empire, but the Persian Empire was a rival to the Roman Empire, similar in scope and size, but the Persian Empire goes from what we think of as Mesopotamia all the way to parts of north uh, western India, Afghanistan, Pakistan. So the Persian Empire was quite extensive, but most of the missionary sending from Antioch remained in the Roman Empire for obvious reasons, linguistic reasons, travel reasons, uh, infrastructure reasons, but missionary sending out of Edessa went throughout the Persian Empire. And that's a whole significant story about the gospel spreading in an empire that was never, never Christianized in the way the Roman Empire was. You have two kind of different, very different, but simultaneous spread of the gospel stories and remarkable stories of the gospel spreading throughout the Persian Empire from Edessa. But what's important is that's the launch pad to get us to China. You go, how did we get all the way there? I'll just say this. For several centuries, I think the first three, four, five centuries of Christianity, the Persian Empire had a rapidly growing Christian movement, just like the Roman Empire. Both were uh, not officially recognized religions. Believe it or not, the first two or three centuries, Rome was a much stronger persecutor of Christians than the Persians were. So Christianity thrived more in Persia than it did in the Roman Empire for for several centuries. Then they would take turns, which would be the more persecuting empire. But if we've heard of Antioch, we've heard of Corinth, we've heard of Ephesus, there are some other cities that are, that are sort of simultaneously significant Christian centers in the east, cities like Nisibis in eastern Turkey, cities like Seleucia Tesiphon in what's now modern-day Iraq, cities like Merv in Turkmenistan or Samarkand in Uzbekistan. We have similar centers not only of uh, churches being planted, but theological schools, significant monastic centers in these cities, and yes, Turkey, Iraq, uh, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan, and even a city like Balkh in Afghanistan. And again, if you look at the map of the Persian Empire, these are all kind of within the sphere or at least adjacent to the Persian Empire. And if you were to, to, and it's significant because not only were these significant Christian centers, they're all major uh, trading depots on the Silk Road. So if you just begin to plot them, you're going from Syria all the way to Uzbekistan or Afghanistan. You're beginning to see how the gospel's spreading like a, a, like a series of links along the Silk Road. And these become significant throughout what we consider the Middle Ages. We often think of the Middle Ages, we think of knights and, knights and princes in Europe. This is the exact same time, but it's happening in the East, in Central Asia, uh, in the Middle East, and then as far as China. But this is how the gospel's moving. And just to give you a sense of sort of geographic uh, proximity. Again, our Bible maps, if you flip to your back of your Bible, it shows Syria on the far eastern side, if you will, and then the Mediterranean. So you kind of like Syria, you look at the Mediterranean, you have Syria on one side, and then you have Europe on the other side. And that's how we just imagine the Bible and church history. And I want you to, <laughs> uh, all due respect to Bible makers, you need to imagine your map going way further east than Syria. And I know Bible maps are meant to show you things are happening in Acts, so fair enough. But we're stretching the map further east because this story that we have evidence from in church history, almost immediately after 
the book of Acts. Uh, simultaneous with some of the early church stuff going on in Rome, we have the gospel spreading. Let's just give you a few examples. We have a church in Afghanistan, in Bactria, in 196 AD. And that's as early as we have churches in France or in England. We have Christians in Sri Lanka by five, evidence Christians in Sri Lanka by 550 AD, around the same time as the evangelization of Scotland. We, if you think about geographical distance, right, Seleucia Tessaphon, which is now near modern-day Baghdad, which is a major Christian center during this time, that's closer to Jerusalem than Athens is, right? We think about Paul goes to Athens on a missionary trip. We think that's, that's not very far away. Uh, you think about Merv in Turkmenistan, again, another major Christian center and a major center on the Silk Road. That's as close to Jerusalem as Rome is, right? So the apostles can get to Turkmenistan as easy as they can get to Italy. Right? Whereas getting to Italy requires the Mediterranean, getting to Turkmenistan requires the Silk Road. One more, Samarkand, which seems very far away, it's in Uzbekistan. That's closer to Jerusalem than Paris is. The only reason why we think that Europe and the West is closer to the Middle East is because we always see them in proximity in maps. So we don't think about uh, the rest of east of Jerusalem, what's going on there. But you may say, okay, so if, I, if you've given us a little bit of, of a sense of geography or the history of trade, how does this actually work? What was going on on the Silk Road? And as you may guess, as you may know from perhaps your grade school history lessons, the Silk Road was an ancient trade route that connected Syria to, basically it connected East Asia to the Mediterranean, right? So it began in Syria, worked its way across Mesopotamia, Central Asia, all the way to China. That was kind of the end point. And it would connect China not only with everywhere in between and Syria, which is a major trade route, but it would connect it to the Mediterranean. So if you could get yourself to the Mediterranean, that's why we have Chinese silks even in Western Europe. Chinese silks traded in the Roman Empire. Rome and China were never trading partners directly because there are several, you know, the Persian Empire, you have, you have nomadic uh, Central Asian traders in the middle. You have several groups in between them. But they both knew of each other's existence. The great Chinese empires, think Han China in the first, second century, think the Roman Empire at its peak, they knew of each other. And they would occasionally say, oh, we should, we should try to reach out and become direct trading partners. But there are so, so many middlemen in between, they never became close direct trading partners. But they were goods that moved from China all the way to Western Europe, and Western Europe all the way to China. Um, and that was because of the Silk Road. The Silk Road was the major um, way that products moved, trade moved, but also it was a place for intercultural exchange and encounter. Because at any different point on the Silk Road, you're going to meet a trader. You're almost inevitably going to meet a trader from another place, another language, another religion. A lot of people um, recognize that not only did Christianity, when Christianity spread on the Silk Road, but perhaps for East Asia, Asian, Asian general, the most significant movement of religion on the Silk Road was actually Buddhism. Buddhism begins in India, but ends up spreading all over Asia, particularly in parts of Southeast Asia and China. But it was the Silk Road where Buddhism spread. So simultaneously as Buddhism is spreading throughout Asia, so is Christianity. And you could say, you know, later Islam, after the 7th century, would also spread along the Silk Road. Um, it's also interesting to think about the fact that the major figures of the gospel spreading along the Silk Road, as you might guess, were not missionaries. They were actually merchants. 
They were Christian merchants, typically from Syria, Persia, but sort of Central Asian nations, all the stands, Uzbekistan. Well, they weren't called that then, but what we now think of as Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan. You have Central Asian trading peoples. And they're the people who are leading the charge, taking the gospel across the Silk Road. And I say, well, how would this happen? Just imagine a Syrian trader who's specialized in a certain thing. He has one leg of the Silk Road. Maybe he takes his stuff from Syria to what's now modern-day Baghdad, right? And then from there, traders get the goods, and they take them from what's now modern-day Iraq into modern-day Afghanistan. And it keeps going down the line. So you never do, no one goes from Syria to China. You don't do the <laughs> three-year journey. Uh, you do legs of the road. Uh, but what, you, what, what this means, though, is that Christians, Syrians, and Armenians, and Persians, the people who are quite close, actually, to the Holy Land, they were early disciples of the disciples, right, in the first century or two. These people are going to begin to, um, as they're going back and forth on the different trade routes, they're going to begin to spread the gospel to people who are kind of perhaps one linguistic group or ethnic group removed from them. So they're, it's, or they're going to reach out to people who are part of a trade diaspora. If you're a Syrian Christian, you might meet other Syrians who happen to live in Central Asia because they're traders, but you'll spread the gospel to your cousin or your brother or your family member or a trading partner. So the gospel is spreading along the Silk Road through these trading diasporas. And what you end up happening, what ends up happening is, is that first you have uh, diaspora churches. So you'll have Syrian Christians in Afghanistan holding a worship service in Syriac. Or you'll have Armenian Christians in Iraq holding a worship service in Armenian. Uh, or you'll have Persian Christians in Western China holding a service in what would be an ancient version of Farsi. But what happens is that diaspora churches don't just stay like that. They begin reaching beyond the diaspora. You begin to have the gospel spreading to other peoples um, along the Silk Road. And we find pretty soon that there's not only a, a planting of churches and kind of a spreading of the gospel, but bishops back in Iraq and, and, um, and in Syria go, you know what? There's a Christian community there with no pastor. We're going to send a missionary monk or send a missionary priest to lead the fledgling churches there. So you often have the spread of the gospel by Christian merchants along the Silk Road. And then after something begins to get established, they'll send a priest or a missionary monk to establish a monastery to train more people. And they keep leapfrogging. They don't just keep more from one spot. They keep leapfrogging down the line. I'll give you a little bit of evidence of what that looks like. But I think the major thing to recognize is this is a biblical pattern. Do you actually, we won't have time here. We walk through Acts you'll see there are two ways the gospel spreads, two ways churches are planted. One is the classic, I always imagine, you might call it strategic sending. We go, okay, we're here, and we think for whatever reason God's telling us to plant a church or do a missionary work here. And you kind of decide, and you plan, you strategize, and you go there. But the other way, and we often think that's the only way, the other way we see it throughout Acts and throughout church history, and this is certainly one of the cases of the, the Silk Road, is you have Christians just going places who are not ordained, they're not priests, they're not even planning on being missionaries. Sometimes they're going places because they're persecuted, so they scatter. That's how the Jews often did it. That's how, what you see Philip doing in Acts 8, a scattered Christian planning, splattering a church in Samaria. Uh, but you also see people moving because of their business, because of trade. And this is a frequent driver of missions throughout church history, but particularly in, in this medieval period, early, early medieval period, um, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th century, the Silk Road is this major back and forth trade route 
and the gospel is moving from the Syrian heartland of Christianity all the way to the farthest eastern edge of the world on the backs of traders on camels on the Silk Road. A few bits of context to keep in mind, which I think are, are helpful for believers who are in, like yourself, you're in a nation uh, where Christians aren't the majority. You're in a nation where there isn't a state-backed church. And we often think, well, in Europe, in, the medieval, in medieval Europe, there was a state-backed church and things were easier. Sometimes, in some ways, there some ways they weren't easier. But what you have is you have a context of religious pluralism, can't say the word, and persecution. Pluralism is the norm. Persecution is the exception, but it happens sometimes. But keep in mind, as the gospel is spreading east from Jerusalem, Christianity is never the state-backed religion. But Christianity is usually tolerated as some sort of minor religion, uh, occasionally persecuted, and it lived alongside Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, and eventually Islam. Give you three bits of historical examples to kind of just show you the color of this uh, before we close. One, in 1908, a little over 100 years ago, they discovered ancient ruins along the Silk Road in western China. And you'll see a photo of that. It was, you know, it's the desert. So uh, it's not like anyone's really looking around, but they find all these Buddhist temples. They find cave monasteries. They find that most of them are uh, Buddhist ruins on the Silk Road, but some of them are actually Christians. And they find carved into the stone remarkable archaeological evidence of, again, this early medieval to sort of high medieval trade along the Silk Road that not only involved economic goods but religion. You see Buddhist texts, they find Christian texts in Chinese for, that are over a thousand years old. They even found a Christian text written in a Tibetan language from the 10th century. So over a thousand years ago, there are people theologizing in Tibetan languages because of the spread of the gospel along the Silk Road. There's a photo you'll see from the 8th or 9th century of, a, of an excavated church, again, in western China. We have a Persian priest, and they can tell by the way he's dressed, giving communion to two Uyghur men, as well as one uh, perhaps Han Chinese woman. Uh, again, this they can tell by, the archaeologists can tell by what they're dressed. But just imagine a Persian priest, Uyghur, which is again a certain ethnic group in China, a Uyghur men, and then a, a Chinese woman all taking communion in this photo, in this, in this, mo in this um, wall image in a church. It's a remarkable thing. Finally, you may say, you know, so going back to the Xi'an Stella found in 1623, when they found it, they're like, they had no idea how this could be possible. How on earth <laughs> could there be Christianity in China in the 7th century when they didn't think it had, it had arrived until the 17th century? I think what this historical example tells what the Silk Road Missionary Movement reminds us of is the fact that just like it says in Isaiah 49, it's too small a thing. God, God's only plan was to redeem the Jews and to restore Israel. Right, that's what the God the Father is saying to the Messiah. It's too small a thing that we're just going to redeem Israel. We're going to take the salvation of the Messiah to the ends of the earth. And what we have in this example that we only really know about through bits and pieces of historical fragments and archaeological data is that Syrian and Persian and Armenian Christian merchants over several centuries think 
second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth century. By the seventh century, they've gone all the way from Jerusalem to the largest city in the world in Tang China, Qian. That is a remarkable thing. It reminds us that often we think too small. Often we go, I don't even know if God can reach my family. Maybe he can reach my family, maybe, maybe my city, maybe my nation. But whatever your, whatever your scope of mission is, whatever your understanding of what God can do through you or through your church, God wants to do more. I believe God is speaking to all of us. It's too small a thing. Whatever you think that thing is, however far you think God's salvation can go, however far you think God's reach is, it's too small a thing. And the reality is, as, I'm, as I close, I'm recording this video in Nashville, Tennessee, which when Luke wrote Ends of the Earth, he did not realize there was something beyond the Atlantic Ocean, beyond Spain. But someone, when they figured it out, thought the gospel needs to go to that end of the and you guys listen to this in Malaysia. And as I said, it's, it's certain that the gospel reached Malaysia, right? We know of missionaries in the Straits of Malacca uh, well before there were any Western colonists, uh, well before Europe was Christianized. But you guys were also in Luke's mind, in Luke's mind, in the ends of the earth. You would have been considered as sort of part of that eastern end of the earth in Asia. But there are people who took that seriously. One group were those Persian, Syrian, missionary merchants on the Silk Road. And I believe that is a challenge for us. As we hear the words of Isaiah 49, as we hear Jesus echoing those words to his disciples, saying, you be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the ends of the earth. God wants to do something in our hearts. He wants us to get a bigger vision for where the gospel can go in and through us and beyond our national and linguistic and cultural boundaries beyond what we can imagine. God wants to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth because that's what Jesus died for. So may this scripture and this historical uh, episode expand our thinking and challenge us to participate with Jesus in taking his salvation to the ends of the earth. Lord, I pray that we would hear your words Lord, and I pray that we would obey what your Spirit is saying to us. Lord, I pray that we would recognize the ways that our own personal or business networks take us beyond the boundaries of our nation, take us to new places, take us to new peoples, new languages. But I pray that you would give us creativity, Lord, as we think about the scriptures and about the examples from church history in our own time. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified, Lord, and your name would be known everywhere. In Jesus' name, amen.